This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Clever by Nature, a company using innovative design to take carbon out of the carbon cycle. Here's how it works. Clever by Nature works with outdoor companies and gear makers, identifying ways to make their manufacturing process more sustainable. Maybe figuring out a way to save water or source materials differently or upgrade machinery in the factory. The kind of changes that are good for the planet, but kind of expensive up front. Clever by Nature identifies the changes that manufacturers should make and then partners with a different company or group of buyers, maybe even you, to offer an exclusive limited run of those sustainably produced products to just that group. So let's say that there's a new kind of jacket made with a better fabric that keeps thousands of tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Clever by Nature finds buyers for that jacket ahead of time, guaranteeing that if this jacket gets made, it will sell. The manufacturer, safe in the knowledge that they won't lose any money, then makes those upgrades to their production process and produces the jacket. Both groups split the carbon credits, and that manufacturer now has a lower impact production process that they can use going forward. It's lasting change. Clever by nature is just the catalyst. To find out more and to see if your company or group could be a force for change, go to cleverbynature.com. That's clever x nature. Cleverbynature.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is Sweat Science, stories of human endurance. Well, let's, let's kind of actually start in the middle a little bit. And can you just describe the pool? Physically or like the whole picture, like emotionally too. It's an Olympic sized pool and it seemed like a lot of times the filters and stuff were breaking. I remember our instructors like getting mad about that and it sounds like the chlorine levels are off often and uh, the clocks don't work. Um, but, and then there's like this temporary, I don't know what you call it, but it's just a tall, it's like a arc, like I think like an old farm building, but it's just a canvas, uh, like half of a cylinder shape. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just this temporary structure that goes over just the pool. They bring us in on a bus and then you walk into this gated area, everything's fenced off and then you line up and everyone drops their rucks. And then, uh, yeah, when then we would like change into our UDTs, which are these like terrible throwback, 100% cotton, thick, stiff shorts. I don't know why we wear them. I think they just wear them as like, just to make things harder. And then you have a t-shirt and then we go in and shower and then we line up on the pool. And there's always this huge rush to have us line up with these timelines. And then we literally sit on the edge of the pool for an indefinite amount of time. It would not be like out of character for that to be 20 minutes just sitting there while the instructors finish their stuff. And you're just waiting? Yeah, just like waiting. You're not supposed to talk. And then they kind of walk around you ominously and and you're just kind of basking in the fact that you know you're about to halfway drown. the Outside Podcast, I'm Peter Frickwright, presenting another episode of Sweat Science, looking at the limits of the human body. And to do that, I want to introduce you to my friend, Travis Morgan. 
Yeah. Okay. Cool. Do you have a Do you have an idea of how you want this to roll out? Yeah, I was just gonna follow your lead. I'm. I'm like. Travis and I have known each other about five years, and we've been through some stuff. When he came down with appendicitis during a backpacking trip in Yellowstone, I drove him all night to the hospital. When I broke my leg in a canyon, Travis was there all night helping the search and rescue team. He spoke at my wedding this summer and spent five months living in my garage last year because he didn't mind living in garages. And we're talking to him today for a story about the limits of holding your breath. Because at about this time last fall, he was confronted with a situation in which he had to figure out a way to stay underwater longer than he ever had before. And if he didn't, he wasn't going to die, but it was going to derail his whole life. At the time, he had just moved out of my garage because he was finally going to a thing called Indoc. Indoc is the first step to um, becoming a pararescue man in the, in the Air Force. Indoc is short for indoctrination course, and it's the first piece of training on the way to becoming a pararescue man, also known as a PJ. PJs are the special operations unit of the Air Force. The simplest way to think about it is that these guys are like the Navy SEALs, except instead of being an elite combat unit, they're an elite search and rescue unit. You know, remote, technical uh, search and rescue and they, they do that, you know, within combat and outside of combat, too. Travis had been trying to become a PJ for as long as I'd known him. And if I can step into the role of Travis's career counselor, it seems like a good fit. He's methodical, athletic, calm in a crisis. His previous job had been taking troubled kids on extended therapeutic backpacking trips. But after six years on that job, the company went out of business. My co-producer, Robbie Carver, had actually worked there, too, and introduced us. That's how we all met. Anyway, Travis was looking around for something else. While leading expeditions, I, I really, it became clear to me that uh, whenever there was some kind of emergency, so like a kid ran away or a kid got violent or like we had to do some kind of search, like I'd have this, this switch kind of flip and I'd be like, this is my problem to solve. Like I'm going and I'm going to make it happen. So I kind of identified that in me. So I'm like, like, how can I do that? Like, yeah, like on a team of people. Becoming a PJ is no trivial thing. These guys jump out of planes so they can reach and stabilize both military and civilian patients that no one else can get to. They also embed with SEAL teams and go out on missions. They're trained as rescue swimmers, combat divers. They do mountaineering, high-angle rope work, and parachute training. They also become paramedics and do emergency and combat medicine. And they do search and rescue work that's too technical or dangerous for teams of volunteers. So you kind of saw it as the the peak version of the things that you were drawn to, of the things you were good at, and, the, and like what you wanted to do with your life. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But in order to get that job and get trained in all those skills, you have to get through Indoc, which is designed not to make you quit exactly, but to test the reasons you're there. And if you think about it in terms of our first endurance episode, where we learned about how muscles can keep going long past their normal point of failure, if the brain can give them a good reason, Indoc is designed to filter out the guys who don't have that kind of special motivation, who can't push themselves past the point of failure. The course is nine weeks long, and every day is a mix of push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, running, and stuff that resembles your average high school football conditioning practice. Plus, whatever else the instructors come up with, like open water swimming in the freezing cold, or carrying water jugs around a track, or hiking carrying a stretcher with a 200-pound mannequin. It's brutal, 
By the end, Travis's body was completely run down. My body was just kind of like shake, like I had tremors, like it was just kind of like baseline, just shaking if I'm trying to relax. It was stressed to the point that it was like, it was really difficult for me to sleep. And therefore, like I'm not getting adequate rest. And then, um, yeah, I was, I was like coughing up all kinds of green stuff. And then towards the end, like I, I was throwing up multiple times a day. And then like in my throw up was blood, not a ton, but there'd be these like these globules, like the size of grapes, maybe like eight of them, like when I would vomit. As you might imagine, the washout rate is pretty high. If 30% of a class makes it, that's a really good class. A 10% graduation rate is still normal. People that aren't a good fit just end up quitting. Yeah, so, yeah. All the people that didn't make it on my course, except for one, quit voluntarily. Most everyone that makes it to INDOT can handle the running, the push-ups, and sleep deprivation. What really gets people is the water. Almost everyone that quits, quits because of the pool. How often were you in the pool? Every day. Every single day? Every day. I mean, it was a military schedule, so we, we weren't there on the weekends, but any day we were training, we were in the pool. I think at least twice a day. There were harder and easier pool sessions, things like swimming with fins or doing laps on a kickboard. But the difficult ones were called watercon, short for water confidence, which reads kind of like a cheeky joke, given the fact that watercon is basically voluntary drowning. It turns out that you can find out everything you need to know about someone's motivation and commitment just by giving them tasks and not allowing them to breathe. The easiest way to like induce stress is to say, stop breathing now. And that's totally fine for a little bit. And then slowly, all of your systems begin to scream for oxygen. And everything in you is like focused on getting oxygen. And while you're in that, that curve of, I need to find oxygen now, they say, okay, do this instead while your body is screaming for something else. Their instructors would fill their dive mask with water and then make them do flutter kicks on the side of the pool so that every time they called out the count, their sinuses got a chlorine rinse. Or there was an exercise called drown proofing, where they'd bob up and down in the pool and swim back and forth with their legs bound together and their hands tied behind their backs. There were also 10-ups, where they'd swim from side to side of the pool underwater and then do push-ups during their entire recovery period, then jump back in for another underwater swim. So by the end, most people are pretty, a little bit loopy. <laughs> there was also something called ditch and dump, where they had to take off their gear and lay it out on the bottom of the pool very precisely. Your fins are together touching, perfectly symmetrical. Your weight belt is laid over top of them, perfectly symmetrical. And then your mask is stuffed under your weight belt, centered on your fins, everything symmetrical. And if it's not, you fail. But the most quintessential breath-holding exercise they did is called buddy breathing. Two people underwater passing a snorkel back and forth, and the instructors deciding when each one gets to breathe. And it starts off at the beginning, like, you just do that for 30 seconds, the instructors mess with you a little bit, you know, kind of push you underwater, and it'll, like, cap your snorkel every now and then so that you can't breathe on it, and you have to pass it until it comes back to you again. And at the very end, they're doing two minutes of full harassment where you're yeah, they're just they're shoving you to the bottom of the pool. They'll cap your snorkel twice in a row. They're shaking you, they're splashing you, they're ripping your goggles off and just kind of dragging you around the pool while you're trying to breathe. 
Um, yeah, so those are some of the things you have to do <laughs> with without much breathing. Yeah. The task of holding your breath is primarily mental. That's what makes it such a good test of a PJ's resolve. Simple tasks performed underwater force you to prioritize the task above your breath. They're not trying to make candidates pass out. They're teaching them that they can push a lot farther than they think they can. That you can learn to ignore the screaming urge to breathe. Yeah, I mean, the the limits of running out of oxygen is something we're all familiar with, except that it's actually not what we're feeling. We're We're not perceiving that we're running out of oxygen. What we're actually perceiving is that levels of carbon dioxide in the blood are getting too high. This is outside columnist Alex Hutchinson, who writes about all sorts of human extremes, including free diving and world record breath holding. And so there's a there's some sensors called the the carotid bodies, which keep track of how much carbon dioxide is in your blood, and when that gets too high, you start to feel an overwhelming urge to want to breathe. But your body doesn't actually need to breathe yet. This warning system is relatively cautious, so you can ignore it for a while. Your carbon dioxide alarms start sounding long before you're actually out of oxygen. But the feeling of needing air is just the first phase of a breath hold. Most people will give up before they get to the next phase, when the body starts to take over. Your body basically decides that something is is wrong with you, that you're, you're ignoring its very serious instructions, so it's going to take matters into its own hands. And so your breathing muscles start to contract on their own. These are called involuntary breathing movements, or IBMs. And so that marks the start of what's called the struggle phase which is basically that you're struggling against your body, which is trying to force you to breathe. It's very unpleasant. Your body is trying to reverse barf air into itself. But you can ignore these, too. And at a certain point, once you've learned to do that, there's kind of no limit to to how long you can hold your breath until you actually do run out of oxygen. And when you get to that point, you will black out. Blacking out is the body's last-ditch effort to save itself. It's like going into standby mode, so that your brain and muscles use the minimum amount of oxygen, and you last as long as possible underwater. Your larynx clamps down, so as not to allow water in. But at a certain point, either seconds or minutes later, your throat will open for one last gasp. So you just have to hope that someone gets you out of the water before that happens. Which actually means that there's probably no better place to pass out than in the pool at Indoc. Like, you're just surrounded by paramedics who watch people pass out on a regular basis and have, like, a very clear method for how to respond to it. So, yeah, I'm happy to pass out at Indoc. The thing is, once you pass out, you're red flagged so that instructors can keep an eye on you. If you pass out so many times, um, they make you stencil H-lock on your shirt, H-L-O-C, and that stands for hypoxic loss of consciousness. If it keeps happening, you're removed from training. I know of about three people that were just removed from training because they passed out too often. And just to be clear, the instructors are not trying to make people pass out. It's just a byproduct of taking people right to the edge of their endurance. Chances are, if you're at Indoc, you've trained your body to burn oxygen really, really well. You can run all day and lift all kinds of heavy things. But the pool flips all your training on its head, makes burning oxygen a liability, and it filters out the people who can't handle that, and calm down when their survival instincts kick in. 
The problem for Travis was that it seemed like he was too calm under stress. His survival instincts were AWOL. In fact, there was one event in particular that he couldn't do without passing out. The 50-meter underwater swim. So the 50-meter is actually kind of a different event at Indoc. I feel like maybe it was like a recent thing, and the instructors kind of know that it's, it's just something that you need to do to get through Indoc, and they're like not trying to make you fail this. They're not trying to stress you out. So you get in the water, and you hold on to the pool gutter, and you just sit there and you really try to, you know, do whatever you need to do to get ready for the swim. The body at rest consumes much less oxygen than an active body. So to get ready for the swim, Travis would try to relax and breathe deeply, almost supercharge his system. My buddy had showed me this, this breathing technique where you breathe out like really steadily, breathe out everything you have for like three seconds. Um, there's like a little bit of a pause and then you breathe in, you know, the biggest breath possible for three seconds. And then I would just kind of hold that just for, you know, a couple seconds and try to like almost flex my stomach. And in my head, I was like, you know, pressing the oxygen, <laughs> creating more pressure to like perfuse the oxygen yeah, into my cells. That I don't think that's what happens, but that's what I was doing. Then they got in the water. The instructors said go. Do you get to do you get to push off the wall? Yeah. You you pu- push off the wall. And yeah, what I would do is kick, glide, and then pull, glide. And that was my my rhythm. So yeah, usually like the the first 25, yeah, cruising through the deep end at Indoc was actually really pleasant. You're like, you're in the deep end, you're underwater, like you know the instructors aren't going to mess with you, and like you're just cruising. When did you start to worry about it? I started to worry about the 50 when we first did the 40. Hey! Hey! Wake up, you! Wake up! Wake up! I don't have a clear memory of what happened, but I surfaced, I stood up, and then I think people said I kind of like shook for a little bit and never really like fell over, but was like just totally out of it. And then I remember like coming to when like an instructor was in my face just kind of like whoa <laughs> like didn't make it on that one huh and I decided like I was just like what what like what just happened like I'm standing up but I remember finishing and then we maybe we did another 40 or was it, it was like a 45 or something uh, and I think like the same thing happened and it was like oh crap like all of a sudden I think this is like, you know, week seven or eight. And like, there's this thing that I have to do that's harder than what I am doing. And like, I, you know, I can't do the short version yet. The really troubling thing was that Travis had pretty much exhausted all of the normal ways of extending his breath holds. He was in really good cardiovascular shape. He could ignore spasms in his diaphragm and choose not to breathe until everything grayed out and disappeared. But that was the problem. He wasn't quitting or giving up. He was passing out. I know a bunch of people because um, of the team that I'm on who have made it. And I'm like, if, if they can make it, I can make it. 
And then, like, all of a sudden, out of blue, at the very end of Indoc, there's this thing, and it's like, yeah, you've never done this successfully, and everything suggests that you're not going to make it. And it wasn't just ego at stake here. Travis had already invested a lot of time and energy in the idea of making it through Indoc. In fact, just because it's such a crazy story, let's take a minute to walk through everything he's been through trying to get here. Travis found out about the pararescue program while he was in the Army ROTC program in college. He wanted to do something with the military, which is kind of weird if you know him. You know, some of the way America had gone about their wars, I was like, I'm not, I'm not stoked to be at like the the tip of the spear of that. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure about it. But the rescue mission, like zero qualms. I was like, no matter what's going on, like. Um, like, I want to make that mission happen, so I chose specifically to do medical evacuation. He wanted to be a helicopter pilot, and so after college, signed up for flight school. But he kept getting bumped from the courses. And the short version of a very long story is that I could bounce between different aviation units, and I would get a flight slot, and then it would dissolve. And that would happen, like, every six months. Every six months, he thought he was going to flight school. Every six months, he didn't go. And then the Army has like a magic three-year window. If you don't go to your school training within 36 months, they release you. So they released me, and they gave me a general discharge under honorable conditions. And I, I thought that was totally fine. They're like, yeah, you didn't end up going to your school of training, so we can't like give you a full honorable discharge. But like, you didn't do anything wrong, so we'll give you like a general under honorable conditions. So like that, that's they basically made it off. Like that's totally fine. So Travis goes and leads backpacking trips until, like I said earlier, that business closes down. And I was like, okay, like, I love doing that. It's not an option anymore. I've been thinking about this PJ thing. Like, let's do it. At 29, he tried out for a PJ team, which is a pretty grueling physical test in itself. But he got offered a slot, at which point they find out about his general discharge under honorable conditions. And I was like, yeah, it's like general under honorable conditions. And I explained the story and they're like, that's a deal breaker. Like, you cannot join this team with a general discharge. They were, like, prying, like, what did you really do? And I was like, no, this is it. Like, I signed up to be a medevac pilot. They weren't able to send me. Like, like I did everything I could to get to school, and I wasn't able to. And they're like, if that's true, you got screwed, and you need to fix that. And I was like, okay, what does that look like? So thus began this, like, six-month adventure of learning what it took to change a general discharge to an honorable discharge. And that resulted in me assembling a 33-page packet. Many of those pages were, like, totally handwritten by me. And Robbie Carver actually (laughs) was the main editor of that. (laughs) Good editor. (laughs) Solid. (laughs) You know, if you can find that guy to edit your stuff, like, lock that in. Um, submitted that that packet like six months later and then it took a year for that packet to be reviewed at this point Travis has to try out for the team again and he gets a slot again and then there's a six month wait while the Air Force processes his paperwork but then while he was waiting he told the guys on his team that he'd signed up to be an officer and they're like, hey, man, like, if you, re- you really want to do the work, which it sounds like you do, which is like hands-on work with the team, like, you need to be a PJ. Like, the officers are mainly just human resources managers. They're organizing logistics. So he went back 
and tried out for the team again. And this time, he got as far as taking his flight physical. Which, on some bases, is completely done in 24 hours. And at the end of the day, it took them one year to process my flight physical. Even for, you forgot the part that where uh, you were you were going to try out for the team and then we did the backcountry trip across Yellowstone and you had appendicitis and you had to wait Whoa. another, what was it, another year, right? I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that that was another chunk of those times. Because I, did I have a tryout scheduled right after that? Yeah. Yeah, I was supposed to come back and try out. And I was like, hey, man, I just had my appendix removed. Like, can I push this back? And then they're like, what, you had your appendix removed? Like... You need to you need to wait at least one year after you have any significant surgery. And I think I flipped my lid and I was like, this is a standard surgery that some astronauts have done like preemptively before they go into space. It's like a routine thing. They're like, all right, six months. <laughs> I was like, dear God. <laughs> anyway, he was finally on the team, at which point he had to wait another year for a slot to open up at Indoc. In total, from being accepted onto the team to starting Indoc, it was five years of waiting. So that was my life from like 29 to, to 34. So by the time they got to the conclusion of Indoc, Travis was 50 meters from the end of a very long road. Problem was, he had to do the last 50 meters underwater. And with the final evaluation coming up quick, he knew he was going to have to change something if he was going to make it. But Travis didn't have much more to give. So what can you do when you have so much of your life invested that you won't quit, but you are actually coming up against one of your body's hard and fast limits? We'll find out after this break. This episode about pushing the limits of human performance is brought to you by Clever by Nature, pushing the limits of natural materials. Before the show, we heard about how Clever by Nature identifies ways that companies can make their manufacturing processes more sustainable, like taking dead and diseased trees out of the forest in Colorado. So in order to actually do that at some scale, we had to create a, a different market for it, if you will. This is Clever by Nature CEO Valerie Navarro. And you may have heard about the bark beetles that are killing off huge stands of forests up and down the West Coast. What Valerie's doing is instead of letting those trees burn in the yearly wildfires, she's turning those already dead trees into something called biocarbon through a process of heating it up in the complete absence of oxygen. At about 1300 degrees Fahrenheit, it degrades the wood down to a usable carbon. So we can actually take that and create textiles from that. We can create soft plastics and or solid plastics. Uh, we can also put it into rubber so we can begin to inject that, if you will, into different types of products. These are early days, and they're starting small. So the first product is a phone case from Woodchuck, made from a plastic that's 20% biocarbon. But that ratio is going to go up to 80% biocarbon in January, with more products on the way. And I know phone cases aren't going to save the world, but remember, this isn't about making new stuff but building the infrastructure for sustainable materials to replace petroleum-based ones. So the goal is for us to actually take those trees, get them out of there to mitigate the wildfire risk, and turn it into a 3D-printed usable product and ship it out. So that vertical integration really begins to manifest itself as a completely different type of manufacturing backbone. 
Go to cleverbynature.com for more information about how you can help change the way things get made. That's Clever X Nature. Cleverbynature.com. So with final evaluations looming, Travis decided he couldn't just keep doing what he was doing if he hoped to be able to swim 50 meters underwater and pass in dock. Something had to change. So what did you what did you do in response to to that kind of like realization? Um, I did a few things. So one was I started to work on my stroke to try to be more efficient. Yeah, and we went in the pool and I just like, I would do like 35, something that I knew was was in my comfort zone. And I just work on my stroke to try to, you know, glide as long as possible, be as hydrodynamic as possible and be as relaxed as possible and really try to work on my strokes. And that was pretty helpful. But it wasn't enough. They did the 50-meter swim again a few days later, and Travis passed out again. I swam the whole 50, and I remember at the end, you know, after working through the phase where my diaphragm is thumping, everything inside of me is like screaming to go to the top, pushing through that part and getting to a place where I'm like, I'm not sure if I was just unconscious for a second. Like, I feel like everything is kind of... I, like, I feel like I just woke up <laughs> and like being kind of felt like an in, in and out sensation. And then I remember touching the wall and standing up. And then, uh, yeah, the next thing that I knew, like I was just standing there and my chin was on my chest and I was looking at the, the pool deck and I was like, oh, crap. And I went to stand up and then I like could felt my teammates chest against my back. And I realized his arms were hooked under mine and he was he was holding me up. Yeah. And the instructor looked at me. He's like, next time I'm going to slap you hard. And then he like swam away. And I was like, what just happened? And then my teammates told me afterward that I had stood up and just like conked and like collapsed. And then I like convulsed for about five seconds. And then the instructor was like slapping me for about 15 seconds, my face and my chest until I came to. Yeah. So at that point I got very concerned (laughs) about being able to complete this critical event yeah and then I started uh really trying to solve this problem so Travis had to figure this out but he wouldn't be working against his body completely besides telling you to breathe and spasming your diaphragm when you don't the body has a couple other tricks to help you stay underwater longer and together we call them the mammalian dive reflex and and basically when you go underwater, your physiology changes right away. So your heart slows down so that you're not uh, using as much oxygen. And the, the blood vessels in your periphery, so in your like arms and legs, squeeze partway shut or uh, you know, almost, almost entirely shut, basically trying to shoot blood back to your core so that you're, you're not, you're not going to lose the oxygen supply to your heart and your brain. You probably don't realize that this stuff is happening, but it is. Your muscles will go lactic way faster underwater because they're getting less oxygen. But other stuff is happening too. And there's, I mean, there's other things that, that, that are even more subtle, like your spleen, um, you know, it's mainly a, a blood filter, but it also keeps a reservoir of, of red blood cells in it. And after you've been underwater for a little while, your spleen will basically squeeze itself like a sponge uh, and release all these red blood cells carrying oxygen into circulation. So it's like a backup reservoir of, uh, uh, of, of extra oxygen. 
What Travis didn't know when he went about trying to figure out a way to extend his breath hold was that he was accidentally short-circuiting the dive reflex every time he prepped for the 50-meter swim. Without meaning to, he was turning it off. So how did you how did you go about trying to solve the problem of of passing out? Yeah. So thankfully, my roommate was really good at the 50. He was a rescue swimmer in the Coast Guard, and he'd also done um, some free diving. So like the 50 was not a problem for him. He told his roommate what he was doing before every swim. Breathe deep and try to supercharge his cells with oxygen. And his roommate said, whoa, 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 you probably shouldn't do that. You should probably just relax. Take one deep breath and go. And I was, I was pretty confused because at that point, especially during the, uh, the underwaters, the 25 meters, I feel like that breathing pattern like helped me a lot. Like it made those much easier. Like those weren't nearly as hard after I started doing that breathing pattern. So I was like, well, I don't understand what's going on. Like this breathing pattern should help me. And, that, and I thought it was. So after talking with him, I think he kind of raised the question, like that might be like hyperventilating. And I was like, no, hyperventilating is like taking quick panting breaths. Like <laughs> when I was doing, it was like, hold and then repeat hyperventilating is breathing faster or more than you need to it blows off extra carbon dioxide and changes the balance between oxygen and co2 in your body but the problem with breathing off co2 is that co2 is what your body uses to gauge how much air it has left so oxygen is the fuel you know co2 is the exhaust and as you build up co2 your oxygen level decreases and on normal conditions you can measure very accurately how much oxygen is in your system by measuring the buildup of CO2. Travis's intention when he was breathing deeply was to pack his lungs with air and force the oxygen into his cells. The problem is, almost everyone walks around with an oxygen saturation level of nearly 100%. So, you, like, you can't really improve on that. Um, so what happens when you hyperventilate is you you end up with the same oxygen saturation, but you blow off a bunch of the CO2. It's kind of like taking the needle on a gas tank and just bending it over so that says you have an extra quarter tank of gas now. And this is where things get counterintuitive because it feels good to have an extra quarter tank of gas. All the discomfort and anxiety of holding your breath is caused by the needle getting close to empty, not by the tank actually being empty. So if the gauge says you're fine, that you don't have too much CO2 building up, you feel great. Holding your breath is easier if you hyperventilate first. You just can't hold it as long. So on a normal breath hold, when you get to the end of your breath hold, your body's like very accurately realizes, I'm running out of air now. So what it'll do is start minimizing the amount of oxygen that it sends to the less important parts. So it's minimizing how much oxygen it sends to your toes, your legs, your hands, and it maximizes the oxygen being sent to your core, like your vital organs and your brain. When you hyperventilate, however, the body doesn't know that it's running out of air. And so it doesn't conserve oxygen like it should. You're literally wasting your breath. So your body doesn't go into that emergency mode where it's minimizing oxygen being sent to your hands and your feet. 
Um, it just keeps on sending it that way. So at the point where you need to be most efficient, your body is very inefficient in using its oxygen. You don't have that, that normal arc of this buildup of panic because the emergency system wasn't initiated soon enough. You have that extra quarter tank of gas. And all of a sudden, like, you're out of oxygen and it just lights out instantly. By the time Travis figured out what he was doing wrong, there was only one chance left to get it right. Final evaluations for the 50-meter swim were on a Monday, and he spent the weekend before just walking around the base, visualizing getting in the water, pushing off the wall, swimming, and staying conscious. He felt good about the change in technique, but there was no guarantee it would make enough of a difference. Even when they don't hyperventilate, people still pass out on the 50-meter swim. It's still a thing. People still pass out on the 50, and people still get removed from Indoc for that, like even holding their breath normally. And that's when I was super sick and I'm like coughing up blood. I'm just like, that was like the least capable that I felt. <laughs> All of Indoc. If he failed, he'd be washed back for medical reasons. And he would do Indoc again, probably joining a team about halfway through the course. But because he'd been delayed five years, he's now 34 years old, getting towards the upper age of recruits that actually make it through. It's, it's a common story where someone gets like sent back for a little thing and then something bigger happens. They get really bad shin splints or most people have like a max of two or three indox in them. Like it's quite the filter. So all his training plus five years of waiting on paperwork and other delays, then nine weeks grinding away at indoc, coughing up green stuff and puking up blood. It was all going to be for nothing if he couldn't stay conscious. Yeah, I walked the whole length and just tried to relax. A couple people went in front of me when it was my turn. Yeah, I just hopped in and held on to the pool gutter and like just relaxed, like from my head, like just, just kind of incrementally walked down through my neck, shoulders, torso, thighs, feet, just like letting all that stuff like, just like tingle through and relax. And they said go, and I just like blew out everything, filled up. You know, my belly, my chest, my throat. I would like, I like looked straight up to try to get as much, pack as much air as possible into my throat. Just some trick I learned on YouTube. And then I went for it. And I kept my head like straight down, looking at the ground. And just, just did that thing, like the kick, glide, pull. So I think I crossed the middle at like four strokes and was feeling like, yeah, feeling pretty good. And then, yeah, just like I knew it happened, like around 30, uh, yeah, my diaphragm started thumping a little bit. And my body, yeah, began the progression of like, it's time to breathe. The problem with the one breath method is that you're fully present for every urge to breathe and spasm of your diaphragm. And the symptoms start earlier in the swim and get worse as you go. You can hold your breath longer before passing out. It just hurts.
Finally, he touched the wall, which on his previous attempts was when he'd passed out. And then I remember getting to the end. I'm like, I've done this before. Like I've been, I've made it to the end before. Like I just need to like relax, get up. I need to stay conscious right now. Some people theorize that you can shock your system if you like jump up and take a huge breath. Like that can shock your system in a way that all of a sudden like, like all the, I guess like shunting that happens and trying to keep the oxygen in your core and your head kind of just let go too fast. And all of a sudden all that blood just drops to your arms and legs and it drops too fast and then you pass out. And um, it's funny because a part of the exercise that they say you have to do is you have to take your own mask off. I totally forgot about that. And then one of the instructors behind me just came and just ripped it off. And like, I was good. (laughs) And I made it. Like a lot of the physical limits we've been exploring in this series, oxygen is a pretty squishy barrier. 99% of the time, it's mental. And the pool at Indoc is designed to test you mentally. Find out how far you're willing to push yourself. But when you hyperventilate, you bypass the body's built-in safety mechanisms. There's lots of information out there about the dangers of doing stuff like this. The instructors at Indoc told everyone not to hyperventilate. What makes Travis's story so interesting is that he didn't know that that's what he was doing. Well, what I what I didn't realize was this breathing technique that my buddy had showed me was was totally like was something that he took out of like Wim Hof's uh, breathing method. Wim Hof is this actually pretty incredible guy who does all sorts of superhuman things involving the cold and sometimes the water. He sells a breath training program and says practicing it keeps him from getting sick and allows him to withstand the cold. A couple of scientific papers suggest he might actually be onto something, but he does not claim that he can help you hold your breath underwater. On his website, he has like really clear disclaimers like, don't do this around water, don't do this in any place where it'd be dangerous to faint. But like the reality is that his method gets passed around like without those disclaimers. Like people are like, oh, this is a cool thing. Like since doing the method, I can like hold my breath way longer. Like it's so much easier when I hold my breath now. And I'm like, I'm in. Like Indoc is like <laughs> all about enduring the suffering. Like when you're holding your breath, and if there's something you can do to make like be more effective, like at that skill, like tell me. <laughs> Most serious athletes spend a lot of time exploring their limits pushing against them, or trying to. It can be frustrating to know that your mind is the thing holding you back. But no one talks about the fact that actually finding your true, non-negotiable physical limit, that's both frustrating and scary, and dangerous. Unlike almost everything else at Indoc, swimming 50 meters underwater wasn't just a matter of trying harder or ignoring the pain. The only way for Travis to succeed was to turn up the pain, Listen to it. Learn from it. Adjust. And it turns out, when it comes to endurance, that dynamic is more common than you might think. We're taught to avoid pain, to change something if it hurts. But when you start to get close to the edge of your abilities, pain is absolutely necessary. Critical, even. When you actually start to push your limits, pain stops slowing you down. In fact, at a certain point, it's the only way to speed up. More on that next time. This piece was written and produced by me, Peter Frickwright, with editing and music by Robbie Carver. 
Thanks to a couple first name only contributors. You go by Sam, Andy, and John for helping us record in-dock sound effects. They recreated an entire pool session for us. Also, there was big news in the PJ world this fall. Indoc is going away. The last class to go through a program that follows the model we talk about here is in training right now. No word yet on what it's going to be replaced with. Also thanks to Travis Morgan. He has a blog where he's written some stuff about Indoc. That's at scramblednotes.com. This series is based on the book Endure, The Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance by Alex Hutchinson. He talks about oxygen in the context of freediving, but there's a lot of overlap. This piece was brought to you by Clever by Nature, pushing the limits of natural materials. More at cleverbynature.com. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.